pray you would give us um, hearts to uh, and, and ears to receive from you, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Joy. Well, good to see you. I haven't seen some of you in over a year. Where have you been? We've been in the 8 o'clock service, so. Let's see. Oh, dear. Hang on a minute. I did put page numbers on these pages, so. And uh, so I'm actually under a huge time pressure this morning. I have to get a 45-minute message in 30 minutes. So I've already lost the first two minutes. <laughs> okay, there we go. Uh, Aaron's been talking about Joseph, if you've been uh, coming. And uh, I love the story of Joseph. It's one of my favorite in the whole scriptures, and I think it's one of the most powerful stories in the scripture. It's a great uh, picture of Jesus and what Jesus did for us. So we're going to look at one part this morning. Before we start, I want to see if my clicker works. Amazing, it does. Uh, so can you see that? Hey, why don't you read this together with me? And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. So uh, we're actually going to look at three stories this morning. And uh, the first one we pick up in Genesis 37, chapter 37. This is where the story of Joseph begins. When he was a teenager, he was 17 years old. He has 10 older adult half-brothers, and his, uh, his dad, Jacob, has made it very clear to everybody that Joseph, the youngest, is his favorite son. And Joseph uh, helps aggravate that more. And because of it, his, uh, all of his older brothers despise him. They hate him. And they hate him so much that when his dad sends him out to check up to make sure they're doing the work they're supposed to be doing, they come up with a plan to kill him. So uh, that's hard for me to relate to, maybe because I never had brothers, but I did have five sisters. So, <laughs> but it never actually rose to that level where I plotted the death of uh, any of my sisters. So they're, uh, but they do, and they, they come up with a plan to kill him. And so the plan is they throw him down in this pit, this, this uh, pit where he can't get out of, and there's no water down there, and he's going to die down there, um, a slow death. But as he's dying, and as they're waiting, a caravan comes along, a camel caravan, caravan, the Ishmaelites, headed down to Egypt. And one of the boys says, why don't we just sell them to these guys, make some money on it, and they'll take them out of our life forever. So that's what they end up doing. And they get home, and they tell their dad, we don't know what happened to Joseph. We think maybe a lion got him and killed him. And uh, Joseph, or Jacob, is heartbroken about that. But the Ishmaelites take him down to Egypt. They sell him in a slave market in Egypt. And uh, 
a big adjustment for Joseph. He's this spoiled rich kid who likely had slaves. His family had slaves at home, and now he is a slave. And he's a slave for 11 or 12 years in the story as we read it. So he's got some time to think this through. And I think about what, what are his uh, uh, emotions that come to the surface when he thinks about what his brother did to them. And surely there's some uh, bitterness and anger in that at his brothers. And there's uh, this extreme sadness and loss of what he's lost, all of his family connections and the, and the pain and the grief that goes along with that. And I'm thinking now PTSD. And uh, every so often, trigger comes along and sets that off for him, and he, he struggles with that. But he's, he's there now, say 12 years, growing into a young man as a slave, and, uh, and then thing, think, take, things take a turn for the worse. His boss's wife, Potiphar, uh, Captain Farrell's bodyguard who bought him, his wife, now that he's 28 years old, uh, looks at him, says she uh, looked with desire upon uh, Joseph. So <clears throat> being the researcher that I am, I went online and went back through all the old Egyptian archives to look for a picture of Joseph, and I found one. And this is Joseph at 28 years. So, <laughs> so, so his, his, his wife, his boss's wife, looked with desire on him, and you can understand why. So two Sundays ago, if you were here, Aaron and Skip were debating about Potiphar's wife, what she looked like that. Neither one of those two did the research that I did. And uh, so Aaron thought that Potiphar's wife looked like this. This is actually not Potiphar's wife. I looked it up. It's his granddaughter. And it's his wife that we're dealing with here. And with my research, I found Potiphar's wife, and this is her. So, so Joseph refuses her advances, and, and she gets offended by it. And Joseph tells her, there is no one greater in this house than I, and her husband, Potiphar, has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? So. She doesn't like that. She's offended. She has her husband throw him in prison, and he's the, he's the chief of the whole uh, pharaoh security guard. And so he's in prison now. He's gone from being a slave to now being in prison in this maximum security prison of pharaohs. And if he ever had hopes of escaping and getting back home, that's gone forever now. He's thrown in jail, and he will... He will live out the rest of his years there in jail. And so now what is this uh, dominant emotion that comes up when he's thinking about this? All the same uh, things he was struggling with, the hatred and the anger, but now he's got this uh, despair and just utter hopelessness on top of it of a situation ever um, improving. But you know the story. Aaron's gone over it also. Um, and what I think is a picture of the resurrection, Joseph is pulled out of that dungeon and set free, but he's also raised in honor and glory in Egypt and given authority and power over anybody, everybody in Egypt except Pharaoh. He has all the authority and power. And that happened in a matter of an afternoon. 
It was just brought out. They shaved him, gave him a bath, brought him up. And now he's the ruler over Egypt, ruler of all. So his new life now is to save Egypt because he, the Lord has showed him this famine is coming. So he's working at that now. And the years go by. He gets married. He has kids. And now nine years have gone by. Um, and life isn't bad, but he still has, I think, these unresolved issues with his brothers, with Potiphar's wife, with Potiphar, and uh, just kind of an open wound there. In the story, uh, it tells us at that time a famine came over all that part of the world, and uh, the Egyptians come to him for uh, grain, for food, because nobody is producing anything. But not just the Egyptians, the surrounding countries are coming to him to buy grain because the whole area is in this famine. So he goes to work one morning and there's a group of fellows there negotiating for, this, for the sale of grain for, or purchase of grain and he overhears them and they're talking in Hebrew, which is his language. And, and nobody else there is uh, speaking Hebrew. And one of them is named Judah. And he kind of leans in a little bit to listen what they're saying, and just like a freight train, it hits him. These are his brothers, his 10 brothers, who 22 years prior to this had sold him into slavery. And now they're there um, right in front of him. And talk about a trigger to set off the PTSD. Um, he's in the middle of it now. And uh, what is he going to do? Well, we read Joseph Saw's brothers and recognize them. They never did recognize him. But he treated them like strangers and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? So it looks like anger. I don't necessarily think it's anger. I think it's just not knowing what to do, how to handle this. What should he say? Just really floundering in this moment. And he tells them, you are spies. You have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. So Egypt's kind of vulnerable because they have all the grain. And He's accusing them of coming. He knows who they are, but he's making this accusation that they're coming to invade the land and plunder. So he put them all together in prison for three days. Again, I think he's just buying time. He doesn't know how to approach this. Guys, it's me, your brother, remember? He just doesn't know how to handle it. So he, he puts him in prison. And he's going to take some time to figure out how to, uh, how to handle this. But as they're, as they're being taken away uh, to prison, he overhears their, their conversation, their, their panicky conversation. They said to one another, in truth, are we are guilty concerning our brother, Joseph, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. 22 years before, they've linked what they did then to what's happening to them now. And they go on to say, this is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben, the, old, the oldest brother, answered them, I told you guys not to do this. You didn't listen. Now look at it. This comes this reckoning uh, for his blood. So I think Joseph is surely stunned by, the, by hearing this from his brothers, and not knowing who he is, that they've felt this guilt all these years. 
all these 20 plus years, they've been worried about retribution or judgment falling on them because what they had did. So he has that to think about also. So he sends them to prison, and he's three days trying to figure out, what do I do? What should I tell them? And so he comes up with a plan. Uh, he comes up with a plan of how not to deal with it. So he brings them in, and he says, one of you will stay here in prison. The rest of you take your food back to your country and to your families. One of you will stay here until you come back. But when you come back, you have to bring Benjamin. Because he had learned in talking to them that he has a younger brother. That I don't think he had when he was uh, sent to Egypt. Uh, you have a younger brother, Benjamin, his only full brother, Rachel and uh, Jacob. And so he says, when you come back, or he says, don't come back unless you bring Benjamin with you. And then I will let Simeon, who's in jail now, uh, out and go back with you. So off they go. Um, now he has lots of time to figure out when they come back, if they come back, how he's going to handle the situation as his brothers, what he's going to, how he's going to break the good news to them that I'm still alive and now I'm ruler of Egypt. So they, they leave and they actually do come back then, maybe months later, and they have Benjamin with them, with them and he's very moved by that. You read the account, but he's still not willing to tell them who he is, still not willing to go down that um, road with them. And instead, he comes up with another weird plan to keep uh, Benjamin there permanently and send the other brothers back home and never have to deal with the issue. Benjamin, of course, wasn't involved in this plot against Joseph, so he wants to keep him and send the others back. I don't think that's going to work, but that's his plan. And then Judah comes, one of the older brothers, comes to him and he says, through an interpreter, um, sir, we can't do that. We can't leave our brother, we can't go home without Benjamin because it would kill our dad if we did that. So what he's really, what's really going through his mind, we did this with Joseph and we can't do it again. Jacob never recovered from losing uh, his son Joseph and, and Judas has lived, all of them have lived with this secret for all these years and with that guilt. And he says, I can't do that again. And he makes this counteroffer to Joseph. Please let me remain, instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me? So what he's saying is, I would rather be a slave here for the rest of my life than go back home without Benjamin until dad, he lost his second favorite son. Um, so that's, for Joseph, that's very revealing, this sincere remorse and regret that the guys have for what they did. And it tells us in the story that he couldn't control himself. He just started sobbing and sobbing and weeping. He said the whole palace could hear Joseph weeping. 
and wondering what is going on down in that room. Um, but then he makes this incredible observation, Joseph does, and he tells his brothers, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt, but do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. He, did not know, he wasn't able to say that until this moment when he sees clearly what's going on. It says, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, um, but God. And I think the brothers are thinking, no, I think we sent you here, uh, not God. Uh, but this is Joseph's statement. It was not you who sent me here, but God. And I want to ask the question, is that an honest statement? Or is he saying, uh, we're just saying this to make everybody feel better about this horrible thing that happened? Said it's okay, it worked out fine. It was kind of rough for a while, but now everything's okay, so don't worry about it. Is that what he's saying? Or is he saying, it was not you who sent me here, uh, but God? So to answer that question, I want to go to the second story. This is actually the same story, but from a different perspective. This one is not from Egypt. This is from outside um, the galaxy where God is looking in on the situation and his perspective. Uh, last week, Aaron talked about the two dreams that Joseph had when he was a teenager. And in those dreams, which they felt surely were from God, he was in a position of leadership. He was a ruler over his, even over his family, and nobody understood that. But we understand it from God's point of view. Joseph, this is where I'm headed with you. Showing you in these dreams, and this is classic God. Give you the information that's not going to mean anything until much, much later. But he foreshadows it far in advance. And, uh, and then he says, okay, now we're going to head that way. I'm going to show you how we get to that particular point. So you go back to the day when they threw, the brothers threw him into the pit and left him to die. They have guardian angels. Joseph had guardian angels who went running to the Lord and said, we have a problem. They threw him in the pit. And he's going to die there unless we do something. We have to do something. And the Lord said, Yes, right, we've got to get them out of there. So look around. There's a caravan over there. Ishmaelites headed to Egypt. Get them lost so that they go right by the pit here, and we'll have them pick them up and take them down to Egypt for safekeeping until the time is right. So that's actually what happened. God rescued Joseph from the pit, saved his life, and had these guys take him to Egypt for safekeeping from his brothers until the time was right. So they, they picked him up. They took him down to Egypt. Um, they got down to Egypt, and the angels came back. What do we do now? Um, he needs a place to stay, somebody to feed him and, and take care of him. And the Lord said, well, I think maybe we'll have Potiphar, the captain of the Pharaoh's bodyguard. That's going to come in handy later. Have him buy him as a slave and I'll hire him to take care of Joseph. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, he 
bought him as a slave and took him in and took good care of him for about 12 years uh, as a slave. And you know from reading the story that Potiphar was paid for his service. He was very well compensated for taking care of Joseph for those, for those years. And then the Lord, he has a Monday morning management team meeting every week, and he got together with Gabriel and Michael and some of the others, and he says, guys, here's what we need to look at. Um, for what I have planned for Joseph, he's going to need some leadership training. He's, he doesn't know anything. So I want you to have Potiphar turn everything over to him, all his, everything to do with his household, his fields, his, his side businesses that he has going, all of his slaves, put Joseph in charge of that. And I'll make sure that Potiphar's okay with that. So that's exactly what happens. Potiphar left everything he owned and Joseph's charge, and with him there, he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. So Joseph thought he was in slavery, but it's actually a leadership training program for him in these years in with Potiphar. And he's working in with him. The Lord's preparing him for a future national leadership program. He's learning those skills and working with Potiphar. And Potiphar loved him. So did Potiphar's wife, which was a problem, it looks like. But from our new perspective, it wasn't a problem because we know what the next management meeting was. They got together and they said, he's pretty much learned everything he can with Potiphar. We need to give him some advanced leadership training skills. What can we do? I know, let's put him in prison and have him be over all the prisoners and try to lead those guys. He'll learn some skills there in leadership. So that's exactly what happened. They said, how are we going to get him in prison? I'll work with Potiphar's wife. And so they took care of that. And sure enough, Joseph's in prison. He thinks he's a prisoner. This is advanced leadership training, too. And he's going to spend a couple years at that, not near as long as the basic leadership skills. Um, and what he learns in prison is, so he has his own management team meetings every Monday with all the prisoners. And he says, Anmar, this week I want you to clean the toilets. And Anmar says, I'm not going to do that. I'm not cleaning anybody's toilet. What are you going to do if I don't? Throw me in prison? I'm already in prison. So now Joseph has to figure out how to get the prisoners to do something they don't want, which is advanced leadership skills. And by the time he's done, Anwar is going to say, every Monday, I want to clean the toilets. I want to clean the toilets. And he didn't have to threaten him to do that. He just used his new leadership skills. So he's there for at least two years, maybe longer. But the team looked down and they said, you know, he's ready. He's good to go. Get him out of there and put him over all Egypt and let him rule over Egypt and save the people and save his family. So with that perspective, sorry, I missed that. Chief jailer committed Joseph's charge. All the prisoners were in the jail. Whatever was done there, Joseph was responsible for. Joseph can say, so it was not you. Seeing things now from this perspective, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Is that honest? That's completely true. He can say to his brothers, you didn't send me to Egypt, God did. He can say to Potiphar, you didn't make me your slave, 
God did for a good purpose. Mrs. Potiphar, you didn't get me in prison. God did for a good purpose. He had things he needed me to learn there. Pharaoh, you didn't promote me. God put me. Because he had a purpose and a calling for me that he was working at fulfilling. And he was going to fulfill in my life. And this is how he did it. It looked like horrible things. And the Lord said, what's the problem? Just learn your leisure lessons. And we can move on to the next thing. So uh, in your past, if you think about things that happen that you don't really understand, and you might ask, why, Lord, did it have to go that way? Why did these things kind of happen in my life? Um, you may someday get to the point Joseph did where you can clearly see why this happened and what the Lord was up to. They had a calling and purpose on your life, and this is how he got you there. And everything that happened, he was behind the scenes helping to bring that about in your life for a purpose and for fulfilling the calling that he had on your life. Maybe you'll see that, but maybe you won't. And what about that case where you don't see uh, how the Lord used that and what good he brought about because of these different things that happened to you? Well, that brings us to story number three and a short water break. So, story number three is another teenager story, teenager in crisis. It's a girl, though. It's a 16-year-old girl, and she's a, a cheerleader on the Homer High School basketball team. And uh, she's out on her dad's boat in the bay, Catchmack Bay, on a family outing. It's a gas boat. There's a leak in the gas line. Boat fills up with gas, explodes in a ball of flame, and she falls back down in it and has burned 85% um, of her body, half of that being third and fourth degree bones, which burns the skin off through to the, to the bone. And she's very miraculously saved in that, but she spends five months in a burn center in Texas. Uh, they're just trying to keep her alive in the beginning. And then they do start the um, skin grafts. So some of you know I'm talking about Marla, my wife. I think many of you know that. And uh, <clears throat> so she was at that center. They uh, eventually she came home, but she's still got therapy. She has this paper thin skin. That if anybody bumps her, it will tear the skin. So she's very limited in what could you do. And she has these scars that she's going to live with. You can imagine as a teenage girl asking, Lord, why? Why did this have to happen? And what possible good can come from this situation? I just don't see it. What's the good in this? Help me to, help me to see that. Um, and those questions go unanswered for years, for years, for decades. She's never able to get an answer to that question. But meanwhile, she's following his purpose and calling in her life, and she's understanding better and better that the Lord is good. That's that all we can say. The Lord is good, and uh, he leads through his goodness. But at the age of 50, she kind of crossed a threshold there where she was able to say to the Lord, 
Lord, I still don't know why this happened. I still don't see the good, but I need you to know that I no longer need to know why, and I won't ask anymore. So that is knowing by faith what Joseph knew by sight. Joseph could see clearly what God was doing and the good. Some of you, like Marla, may never see that, but you know that God is good, so you walk in faith, not by sight, and accept the Lord's goodness in that. And maybe someday she will know, but she's told the Lord, if I don't know on this life, I'm fine with that. I know you are good. So <clears throat> let me just sum up that from Joseph's story. Uh, in our past, in your past, there's things that are puzzling to you. There are things that are difficult things that you had, maybe now, even your current situation. For some of you, there's horrific, unspeakable things in your past that you struggle to see how that could ever be good, that God could turn that into something good. And I don't want to minimize any of those terrible things that might have happened. But the story of Joseph tells us something about God that we need to know. And, and it's summed up very well in Romans 8:28. And we know that God causes everything in our lives to work together for good, not to everybody, but to those who are called according to his purpose. If you love God and you're called according to his purpose, where he's taking you, he will take everything in your life and work it together for your good. You may see it like Joseph, you may not see it like Marla, but you can trust in this promise that the Lord has given us and has demonstrated so well in the story of Joseph. So that's our lesson from Joseph. Let me say a short prayer for you. Lord, we thank you for the promises you have given us, and especially this promise about your ability and power to turn anything that comes into our life to something you will work together for our good. We see it like Joseph. We thank you for that, but if we don't see it, we believe your promises and we put our faith in you and trust you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you.